And I joke about it in the book. I was like, he actually had a grin on his face with a cigar in his mouth, and he's handing these things out. And I and I was like, it's like an Oprah giveaway. You get ammo. You get ammo. You get ammo. You know. And like he's just, you know, there's joy in bringing salvation, right? And in that sense, we kind of were, right? Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. My friends and listeners, thank you for joining me today. I feel like the Forging Metal Podcast has been on a little bit of a hiatus lately. And all of you that are regular listeners, I thank you for sticking with uh, with me and the show. And you also know, if you're a regular listener, that I've been busy. Uh, a lot of things going on. So, uh, with all that being said, I'm excited. I don't know if I'm going to call this Season 3 for Forging Metal, but we're going to kick off uh, a new round of guests. And... Uh, today's guest is going to be the first one in, in a long line. I've got a lot of guests that are lined up, kind of queued up, uh, ready to to record with them. So all I can say is a lot of excitement is coming, and uh, I think you're going to like it. So without further ado, Brian L. Slade has held command positions in the Army and the Air Force. He's received the Distinguished Flying Cross, Bronze Star, and 14 Combat Air Medals. He attended Utah State where he earned a BA and was commissioned as an Army Aviation Second Lieutenant. He's also earned an MA in Aviation Instruction and he currently serves as a Lieutenant Colonel for Air Force Combat Search and Rescue. One in three will experience significant trauma in their life. For our guest today, Army Apache pilot Brian Slade, this was his first was in Afghanistan. His new book, Cleared Hot, offers a unique perspective on preparing one's mind for trauma. He takes readers in the cockpit of the most lethal helicopter in the world as he flies over unforgiving landscape. So today, you're going to hear a few of those battle stories. Uh, We're going to talk about things like PTSD and PTG and what Brian calls, uh, he, he He compares PTSD, or or not PTSD, but trauma to lightning. So you'll want to tune in to hear uh, how he uses that analogy. I will also add this conversation gets deep. It gets emotional. Um, So I'm going to prepare you for that. There's a few times that Brian has to uh, kind of gather himself. And I thought about editing out those, those moments, uh, and I decided to leave them in. I think the emotion that, that Brian has for not only his stories, but uh, the passion he brings to life is something that I don't want to edit out. And so I enjoyed this conversation a, a whole lot, and, and I think you will as well. So let's get to it. Brian, thank you for joining us. And of course, as I always like to say, thank you for your service. Welcome to The Forge. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having uh, me. Um, we're going to get, you know, a lot of this conversation, I think, is going to really get into your your book that just came out, Cleared Hot, Lessons Learned About Life, Love, and Leadership While Flying the Apache Gunship in Afghanistan, and Why I Believe a Prepared Mind can help minimize PTSD. And for anybody that doesn't know PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we're going to talk about that. You're probably familiar with that term. So before we get into that, though, let me let me say something. <laughs> As I was previewing your book, at the beginning of the book, you know, all authors usually have something. And, you know, this book is for so-and-so, right? And so, Brian, you have a picture of your son, Axel, on there. And I, I think... You know, this is the Forging Metal Podcast, but I'm going to say this word anyway. It's adorable. Your son, <laughs> your son is adorable. And I say, you should just go buy that book just so you can see the picture of, of Brian's son. I don't know how you got him to, I mean, he, he looks like a little, I don't know, a little model, the way he's posing and and it's great. So that was fun to kind of get a peek into, into who Brian is. And, and I, I appreciate that you shared that. So... Yeah. 
You know, let's let's jump into this. Before we we get to maybe the the good stuff of your book and that sort of thing, let's let let's get to know Brian a little bit. What you know, you flew helicopters in in combat and what what drew you to that? Was that something you always wanted to do or how did that how did that path up? No, it isn't something I always wanted to do. I actually thought I was going to be a veterinarian. <laughs> And then I thought I, when I got a little bit older, I was like, well, I like money. So I want to work in finance. And, and, and then I, I realized I had these other needs. I, I've always been kind of a, a, an adrenaline junkie, if you will not. I really loved playing competitive sports. I loved doing, you know, those type of things. And, and I was patriotic. I've always been patriotic. I, I, even before I left the country and confirmed the fact that we are the greatest nation in the world, I felt that before, before proving it right and going and seeing that it's true and so it was kind of a natural fit i kind of and i needed something to pay for college to be honest i was like hey i'm one of eight kids my dad's a teacher i did have a football scholarship but it you know wasn't a full ride and you know there's so there's these other things i'm like well if i'm gonna make this through i gotta find a way to pay for it so military kind of fit all those niches you know it just it was an adrenaline fix it fit the patriotism it gave me a sense of person purpose a, an honorable mission to to embrace and it paid for school so it just was a natural fit now as far as flying a helicopter i didn't know exactly what i wanted to do in the military i just wanted to do something that was kick-ass right and so I didn't want to be, you know, I know there's office jobs, right? And then, of course, even no matter what job you do in the military, they'll try to push you in an office. That's just, it, it, that's just the natural progression. But I got a, I got an incentive ride in a Blackhawk as a, as a young kid idiot. And I was enlisted for, for seven years. And, and then I, then I became a wow. cadet. And I was just like, yes, this is what I want to do right here. And of course, he tried to do what every pilot does when they do an incentive ride is we're going to make everybody puke, you know? So they did things that I didn't know a helicopter could do. And I was like, yes, I'll, I'll take two, please. Sign me up, huh? Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. really, that was it. That was all she wrote after that. I was like, how do you get this done? And like, you got to compete, order of merit, all those things. Okay. Where do you got to be on the order of merit? Let's make sure, let's, let's get this happening. That's great. That's great. You know, I'm smiling because uh, everybody, I think, well, anybody that listens to the podcast knows I'm a pilot and, you know, the model of my airplane, we, we go to the factory, a lot, a lot of, you know, people before they plunk down the money, they go to the factory and they take a, a factory ride. And we always laugh that that's the, you know, that's the hundred thousand dollar ride because once you have that ride, you're hooked. And, and so it sounds like a similar thing. At probably maybe a different level. I've only been in a helicopter once, and it was it was amazing. As, I'll say that as a fixed wing guy, you know those those helicopters scare the living daylights out of me. But it was cool to ride in one. So I can only imagine the adventure that you felt flying that. Not only flying it, but flying it in in combat in Afghanistan. Yeah, no, I I, I just loved what they can do. I mean, stop on a dime, bake over a hill. Still, I didn't know they could go 100 plus knots. You know, things, you're just like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And you're right. They, mechanically, they don't make sense, really. You know, they beat the air into submission. So. <laughs> beat the air into submission. And the other part is if that engine stops, I'm like, okay, we're just a big rock now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you fall with intent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and you're still flying. Are you still actively flying now? I am. I'm active duty. I fly combat search and rescue for the Air Force. I have the beard because I just actually just got my hip replaced five days ago. And so I'm on convalescent leave right now, which is why I look like a little special ops guy. Well, fat special ops guy. So. All right. All right. I'm working on that fat part too. So I don't, I don't know what my excuse is. I don't, I don't have a good one. All right. Um, let's, let's kind of dig into this. You know, one of the things as I was as I was previewing your book, you have, I don't, I forget what you, you, and by the way, you co-authored this with the Michael Hirsch and, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it's like a, it's almost like a teaser. I, I don't know if you'd call that a prologue, whatever it is, almost like an intro, a short intro chapter. And you call it black on ammo. And, and first thing I want to say is what does black on ammo mean? Is that, I assume that's military jargon, but that, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. That means that you, you're, you know, it's, it's kind of like finances. We talk about the same thing where right? you're, you're in the red, you're in the black, you okay. know, you're in the green. Well, when you're black, it, it's not good. You, you're, you're 
basically saying you don't have any more ammo, right? All right. We have an ammo deficit. Right. So, yeah. So in this, you, you want me to jump into this? this thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was reading it and I'm just like, holy moly, this is, it, it kind of sounded like a, a movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and let me, let me pause right there. And, and I, I don't want to, and I don't know what your thoughts are, Brian, but I don't ever want to glamorize war. People die and it's, and it's an ugly thing. And let's just acknowledge that. I, I don't want to make that sound like this is funny that, that people are dying and, and, people are shooting at us. So anyway, um, um, amazing story. Why don't you kind of walk us through, Brian, what that was like and, and give us that story and maybe your own words. And of course, it's your own words in the book, but but right here on the podcast. Yeah, no, to, to your point, yes, serious things that we talk about. And this is life or death. This isn't just, this isn't Hollywood stuff. However, caveat, I do feel keeping a sense of humor and keeping things light through the midst of these intense moments is what helps it not sear into your brain in a way that's going to having that levity, having that ability to realize this is my job. It's a, it, there's some ugly, the w- war is ugly and I'm called to be in the ugly, but what will help me be in the ugly and not let that ugly be in me is by treating it as a job and ha- having some levity at some points, not, not dark. It, it, I mean, sometimes in war, it is dark humor sometimes, but that's kind of a coping mechanism that I found to actually be helpful. Anyway, in this in this particular mission, during the book, I really kind of have a boy to boy becomes man in a lot of different ways. As a husband, as a leader, as a pilot, because I came to all of those all of those things as fairly inexperienced at that point. I was a young leader. I was a co-pilot when I got there, turned into an aircraft commander while I was there. Was a was a lower echelon leader leader when I got there. Got promoted to company commander while I was there. Was married for five months when I got there, and then twenty three months when I got back because that's about how long the whole thing was, right? So it, I was new to all these roles, and and it was really and being jumped into boiling water, if you will. So in this particular mission, it was early in the deployment. Earlier in the deployment, I was still a no. Actually, I was an aircraft commander. I was a newly minted aircraft commander at this point. And because of that, me wanting to mitigate my own risk, because I feel like they actually made me an aircraft commander before I was possibly ready. It was just like needs of the army. We we need somebody. You're next in the shoot. Here you go. We had a warrant officer named Brett Brown get punished at the headquarters unit for, you know, speaking out of term or whatever it was. Great guy but spoke out of turn and they said, ah, you're going up to Bagram and you're not going to fly anymore. And we were short pilots. So I was attachment commander at Jalalabad and my commander said, Hey, Brett, it's coming. They said not to let him fly. Can you use him out there? I said, yep, bring him out here. And of course he's going to fly because he's got lots of experience. There is no way we're not going to use this guy. Right. Can you say that on the air, Brian? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> that he, he's going to fly, even though I, I have orders not to let him fly. Oh, I told him straight up. I was like, look, you can just send him out here. And if you're scared to say that you flew him, tell him you didn't know I was doing it. Right. (laughs) I don't I don't care. Right. This just doesn't make sense. The guy has better hands than most of us. And we're going to have him sit in the background. That makes no sense. And he was a good dude. So he came. I said, hey, be my front seater. Be my co-pilot. I should be his really. Right. I mean, he's that kind of an experienced guy. And to give you an idea, this guy, I mean, he was kind of, you know, a cowboy type of person. He was the guy that would fly the heck out of the aircraft, maybe a little too much, those kind of things. And he literally flew with a cigar in his mouth. I'm not even kidding. Like it's, it's kind of out of it. Like it didn't, it wasn't lit, but it was in his mouth. Right. Yeah. And so we got launched on a, a troops and con or actually a medevac mission early, early in one morning. So we're going in to suppress the enemy so that the medevac bird can come in and get, there was two wounded and one KIA, right? So as we got there, yeah, they were taking fire from all different directions. And I believe the call sign was able, I'm not sure. But as we got in there, we talked to them and we're like, okay, we're going to suppress the enemy and let this guy, let the, the, the Kazbat guy come in or the medevac guy come in. We did that. He picks up the guys, leaves, and to give you kind of an idea, it was a big mountainside, and there was this this ridge line that came down to like a point, and that was the only bald spot. There was other trees and rocks everywhere else, and these guys were fighting on one side of this hill and taking fire from above and below from Taliban, and there was that bald spot where the where the 
the medevac was able to land, get the guys on and take back off. And they, you know, we were laying fire to keep keep them from getting shot up too much on their on their way in and on their way out. On our way out, the ground commander calls and my call sign was Iron 16. He said, Iron 16, this is able 06, I believe was what it was. Can you relay that we are black on ammo? And I was like, black on ammo? Usually, you know, you, you get you get stuff before that. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I will I'll pass it up as soon as I can. And he's like, thank you. You know, we're they're there. The enemy doesn't know it yet, but we're black on ammo. And I'm like, okay. So they're so as we go right around the corner, there's a FOB, a Ford operating base called Asadabad. I called them. I said, hey, we need to get a speedball, which is, you know, a resupply, speedball of ammo and water to the Waterper Valley where this was happening because they're black on ammo. So Roger, 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 Roger. We ended up pushing all the way to Bagram because of the, the, the nature of the wounds. We had to go all the way to Bagram to get these guys to a hospital. And then we got retasked to another mission, which was just a tick, a troops in contact, well, just a tick, a troops in contact mission where we went and did stuff. Then we did another escort mission for, I mean, this this day was going one mission to the next mission to the next mission. Then we went to a, a another escort mission and we're on our way back. Now, at this point, we've flown about seven hours, seven, eight hours in the, in the, in the cockpit, which is a good day on the, on the on normal and several missions. I think when we're probably about done on our way back, they call us and say, hey, we got another emergency medevac up in that same valley that we went to earlier in the day. And I was like, OK, well, we're going to need to request an extension because you got certain levels of hours you're allowed to fly without extension because this is going to take us past our our limit. They said, okay, extension approved. So we we head out there and go into the same valley. I can't remember how many wounded and and whatever at this point. Get in, do this time there's a lot more enemy. And there's I, I could see you know some flashes through the trees, things like that. And so we're really pinning it down and and they come in and they pick up the dudes and we we start to head out and I get the call again and he's like, is this the same iron one six that was in here this morning? And I'm like, yes, this is same iron one six. What's up? How can I help you? And he's like we never got a resupply, right? And I was like, holy crap, they've been here all day. And I found out later, medevac missions all day. Guys getting wounded, guys getting wounded, guys getting killed, guys getting wounded, you know. Of course, they can't return fire. And then he's like, there's a lot more urgency in his voice on this time and desperation because he's like, and they, he's like, and the, and the enemy knows, they know, you know. Wow. Like, it, yeah, and I'm like, dude, I am... I did send that word up, but I will make sure I will make sure you get ammo. I'm not going to put it in the radio. I'm going to make sure that it happens. Okay. And he's, and he's like, okay. So we go back around the corner and I'm pretty fuming mad. And I'm like, you know, going through all these, like who didn't do this and who didn't do that. And all the things that don't, I can't affect right now, you know, basically trying to just lay blame somewhere. Right. Which doesn't help anybody at this point. Right. And and that's what the conclusion I came to pretty quickly. I'm like, dude, you're wasting time. Who cares what the mistake was? Who cares where it's at? Let's figure this out. So I talked to Abad and I'm like, what happened to this? And they're like, long, you know, pause, everything. And they're like, we don't know. We don't know what happened with it. I said, well, I need you to get up to somebody high right now on the radio. Tell them the urgency of the emergency. Make it very, very clear. This needs to be priority one, Right. And so, and then I need you to get back with me because I'm not leaving the airspace. I actually called on our way out. There was another Apache coming in and sent them with the, with the, this escort. And I stayed at ABAT and I called for another Apache because I knew how nasty it was getting in there. And I was like, let's get two Apaches all overhead and just start to lay, lay some, some, lay some lead. He gets back to me and he's like, as soon as they can get anybody out there, it's going to be at least an hour. And I'm like, Dude, they have nothing and they are closing and pinching on their position and they know they don't have nothing because, you know, one shot here, one shot there. That's all they're getting getting out as far as defensive fire. And I'm like, what in the world? What can we do? What can we do? That's like I'm waiting for my 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 wingman to get there. So I was like, well, we'll get overhead. But then that's just a short term fix. I mean, maybe that'll work. And I was like, do you guys have ammunition there? And they're like, yeah, we do. I was like. We're going to land. You're going to fill up our saddlebags. And there's just two little like saddlebags that are inside the, the, the sides of the helicopter, the Apache. Apache's not a utility helicopter. I was not. just going to say, Apaches are not designed to carry cargo, are they? No, they're not. It's like where our helmet bag goes and maybe where some other stuff goes. But, you know, there's like, I don't know, a foot by three foot square on both sides. 
but you could stick quite a few M4 rounds in that, right? Okay. And so, so they said, yeah, they bring out trash bags of loaded magazines and fill and stuff them in there. We're, we're already power limited. I just took gas. So the big thing is like, are we going to be able to land up there? I don't, I don't know. Probably it'll be a controlled crash. You know, I like, I don't, it's, it's going to be, that was the big thing. And so as my wingman comes in, I, I got up, I take off and we, we, we I'm like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to land into the top of this spur. We're going to set it down and, and we're going to resupply these guys. I need you guys to, to suppress the enemy on our way in. And, 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 and he's like, okay, we'll see how this works, you know, because we all know the power limitations problem. Like, how are you going to land, right? And so as we get there, the spur that I talked about, the ridge line that I talked about, the helicopter, the aerodynamic effect of being closer to the ground makes you more efficient. It gives you a little bit more of a margin, right? And to have that effect, you need to be about the rotor blades diameter distance from the ground. And then it starts to get more and more effective the lower you get to the ground. Well, there's trees and everything on the way down, about 30 to 40 foot trees. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get down right on those treetops and I'm gonna use that, that cushion to slow us down on our way down. And as we get down on trade efficiencies, as we get to that clearing, and hopefully as we get really close, I've slowed it enough that we can sit it down without too much damage right and i was like and all these enemy are all on this ridge line too so we're going to be easy shot for them so i told my wingman i was like as soon as we cross over they're going to start shooting at us so i need you to shoot right behind us on our way down he's like roger that so as we start coming down i mean we are right at the tree lines i mean i'm hitting it i think we're probably hitting them with our wheels and stuff like i don't it's all foggy but but i was being all i could be to try to keep that power in maxed out because if you pull too much power Blades slow down, you fall down, right? You can only pull what you can pull. If you pull too much, blades slow down. If, if you get too slow, you fall down. So I had to ride that edge of speed and power to keep it. And here's the crazy part. I'm the one on the controls. I got Mr. Hands in front. I didn't think about this at the time. I was just, I don't know if it's hubris or whatever, but I'm like, I'm the aircraft commander. I just didn't think about it. So I'm being all I can be coming down. And, and and they didn't wait for us to pass over them to shoot us. Freaking rounds are coming up right through the trees on our way down in front of us. And I'm like, I was like, can you shoot? And he's like, no, we're too close. I can't even, the gun won't go down that far, you know? Like, and so, you know, we're just toboggan ride all the way down. And as we get to the ground, you know, boom, it hit. I mean, we hit pretty, pretty hard. And, and I was like, did I break it? You know, I don't know. And pull up the engine page and, and the guy in my Brent in the front goes, ugly, but effective. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the guy, I tell the guys, they come out of the out of the woodwork to get the, the have we got your ammo. They come out of the woodwork to come get this ammunition. And I'm I'm telling you, these guys look like zombies. They're just wasted, tired. They had been fighting a fight with minimal ammunition all day, seeing their buddies leave, wounded, dead, wounded, dead, all day long. They're so tired. They don't even look afraid. They're just walking towards the to, the to the aircraft. And then when they get to the aircraft, they don't know how to open the compartments. They're like hitting the sides and, you know, whatever. And I'm like, crap, they're going to, they're just, what's, <laughs> what the heck? And the guy that's on the radio with me is not co-located with them. So I can't explain it to him and have them figure it out. So I tell Brett, I'm like, I'm going to get out and open these, 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 these saddlebags for him because they don't know how to do it. And he, him and all his elderly exuberance, because he was older. He's, he's yeah, yeah. Older. I'd say, Brian, be careful. I yeah, think I well, read in the book, you said he's an old guy at 50. Well, I, I was like, he's my age now, right? Like, I'm 46. He was like 50-something, right? right? But I, as a, he's not a, I was 28, yeah, yeah. right? So to give you the, the difference, right? I was 28. He's 50-something. And he's like, oh, hell no. I got this, right? And I'm like, Okay, you know, so he jumped and he limbers on out of there quick and starts, you know, just handing these ammun this ammunition out to the to these guys. And I see dirt puffs happen and then our LZ, like they're 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 Taliban's targeting the LZ and they have filled the fire because it's I can see it hitting, right? And I'm and I can hear my wingman hitting the ground behind us. I can feel it, I can, you know, like 
there's a lot going on. I was and just going to say a lot going on. Yeah. I'm like, and we're just sitting there and I'm like, all right, faster, faster. He pulls out the first bag. It rips the things go all over. So he has to like hand them out one, two at a time. They create a bucket brigade where they're like handing it up to the freaking tree line. Once they get it, you know, they're locking and loading, return to fire, which helps, right. Starts to get the Taliban's head down, but that's what, that's the process. And I joke about it in the book. I was like, he actually had a grin on his face with the cigar in his mouth and he's handing these things out. And I, and I was like, it's like an Oprah get, giveaway. You get ammo, you get ammo, you get ammo, you know? And like, he's just, you know, there's joy in bringing salvation, right? And in that sense, we kind of were, right? And as he emptied the far side, he started to run around the aircraft nose and a round hit right in front of him, right, right between his legs. Like I saw the, I mean, I, I audibly said, ah, look, you know, but he can't hear me, right? And he stops. And I'm like, yeah, he saw it too. He looks up at me, still grinning, cigar still in his mouth, and gives me two thumbs up. And I'm like, he's crazy, you know. And so he <laughs> comes back around. The, and when we interviewed him for this, we interviewed him for the book. He's like, my Mike Hirsch is like, so were you scared? And he's like, nah, those guys needed ammo. <laughs> so like, and he goes, priorities, goes, priorities. He goes, they weren't shooting at me. They were shooting at him. They were just missing. <laughs> So he comes back around, unloads everything, jumps back in, and now we have a little bit more power. I scoop off of the edge, you know, and we're not broken, and and then we come back around. We did take rounds on that. We we actually took some through the tail and some other things, but we came back around and then engaged the enemy. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, suppressed, and the and the friendlies were able to get their ammunition, and 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 it's not a I wouldn't call it a win because of all the damage. And the carnage that happened that day and the anger I felt by the breakdown in communication. But it taught me a really, a really important lesson that can be applied to everybody's life. And that is affect what you can affect, right? Don't waste time worrying about who messed up or who's to blame or who's affect what you can affect now. Was that the best way to attack that problem? Probably not. Now that I've had times to figure out the other uh, i mean we could have went in there and laid laid down suppression and maybe the guys get there in time maybe we could refuel there's other ways i could have done it but that's what i could affect and that's what i saw at the moment and that's what i decided to do best option probably not an option yes and i could affect it right wow so, so many yeah so many lessons in there i like it yeah so that's really what i learned from it and and I was, I was just grateful to fly with a guy that was willing to do it with me because not a lot of pilots would have been. They would have been like, oh, yeah. And the other thing that was funny, too, we got two more extensions at that point because we kept pushing that time. And I told him, I said, well, now it's up to the, the, the two star for the approval for the extension. And I sent out the request and, and I told Brad, I was like, look, I sent out this request. I don't know if we're going to get it or not, but are you with me? We're doing this regardless. Right. And he goes. I'm with you, boss. <laughs> like, like I loved it. Like, I had a guy who's not worried about the bureaucracy, the pol- politics. He's worried about doing what we need to do, right? And that's yeah. what, that's what I was worried about too. Yeah, it's funny to me that you know I'm flying my my cushy little airplane that I have, and if I if I do a cross country flight where I'm in the cockpit for six or seven hours, I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. I want to get out of this airplane. Yeah. It's a long day I, for non aviators out there. It's a long day just to be flying around with nobody shooting at you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine eleven point seven is what we flew that day. Wow, and being in a combat environment doing that for for twelve hours, so. Wow. Great. And then, you know, let me, let me just kind of, I'm going to tick off some things that, that I want to highlight for our listeners. You started this by saying use humor. You know, I, I just wrote a a textbook chapter on enduring performance. And one of the things that I focused on was humor. Humor can help us when we're in, in moments of stress, it can help make the situation a little bit better. So you were on to the right thing when you were doing that. The other thing is control the controllables, right? You can sit there and, and whine about why this stuff wasn't happening and getting angry, but that's wasted energy. And I think a lot of people don't realize they get sucked into, you know, that that maybe that whining cycle and it's not doing any good. And then lastly, break the rules, right? If you, whatever it takes. Yes, an Apache gunship's not designed for carrying cargo, but this is all we got. Let's make it happen. 
and we can we can bring some positive impacts and value. So I think those are all those are all such great leadership lessons. So I, I hope you know if the listeners weren't picking up on that that we we hear this this amazing story, but there's stuff for us here too. If you're not a combat aviator, there's stuff here too. Let me, Brian. Let me let me say. Did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah. Here's the risk you take in doing that. I just want to make it crystal clear. It worked out. So at the end of the day, we got medals for that. It did. It doesn't work out. Guess what happens? Yeah. It doesn't work out. We're idiots that took undue risk. That took undue whatever. It, it's a razor thin edge, and you got to be willing to take whichever side of that you fall on when you make that decision. Yeah. And I, I don't encourage people to be willing to, because at the end of the day, you got to sleep with you. Yeah. You know? Good so point. It, you know, it takes courage to do that. Let, let's, uh, I, I'm, I appreciate you saying that because let's not, it seems simple on a podcast to say that, but to, to break the rules and know that it, this might be a disaster and I might be punished for this, that takes courage. And, but I also say that's what good leadership is, knowing when to break those rules and, and do whatever you need to do. Because here's the thing, we can easily hide behind those rules and say, I'm not going to do this because that's against the rules. And, you know, in that situation, maybe a lot of people would have died because of it. So I don't know what the right answer is of when to break the rules and when not to, but I, I appreciate what you're saying, Brian. Sometimes it doesn't turn out is the way we want so when you get home and now you got to be willing to do that and that's what i loved about brett he's willing to do that yeah yeah it sounds like you had a good a good co-pilot at that time you know it always strikes me as is interesting i've i've interviewed a lot of combat aviators i've known uh, i have several of my friends that are former fighter pilots and and certainly read a lot of books and i'm always amazed that when we talk about combat aviators they almost always will say, I'm so glad I'm not down there as, as ground troops. You know, they, they like being in their aircraft. But one of the things that always impresses me is they, combat aviators almost as a rule will go out of their way to voluntarily really, you know, just kind of put their lives on the line to protect those, those troops on the ground. And I hear that in your story. What do you think drives that, Brian? I mean, outside of the obvious, you know, but, but here it is. These are ground troops that you probably don't know them personally. They're all, for all intents and purposes, these are strangers to you. Uh, it's not like your best buddies down there. Why do you put your life on the line to to help them out when when you could easily say, hey, that's not my job? So I've thought about this a lot. I'm glad you asked the question. There is a connection, an innate connection. And I'm going to say, speak from a gunship perspective. I, fl- I, fl- I fly in casualty evacuation or combat search and rescue now. So I can speak from that side of the house too. But from this, what my book is primarily, it's just Apache stuff. And there's an innate connection between us and the ground ground guys. If one of those guys goes down, I take a personal when it's on my watch. So I told you I get emotional sometimes. But, That's all right. So do I. But my current girlfriend noticed this with me recently. I'll meet somebody from the military, and I'll meet and I'll say, "Hey, great to meet you, brother." Right? And and I'll say that, and I'll meet somebody in business because I have other business and stuff that I do. I say, "Great to meet you," and she's like, "You only call people brother." that you don't know well that are servicemen, right? I'm sorry. <sighs> so That's all right, Brian. No apologies. I didn't never notice that before. She pointed out. Now, it's not that there's other guys that I don't call brother once I get to know them. But the fact that they raised their hand and said, I'm going to go do this. You're my brother until you prove otherwise, not the other way around, right? And the guys that raise their hand and say, I'll go do this, and I will be in the dirt, and I will be in the face of the enemy. I will be that guy. And some of those guys make less than a McDonald's guy working at McDonald's, and they'll be that guy. There's just a, something forged there, right? We don't know if he's forged, huh? There's something forged. 
between that support. And yeah, they do say that I, I'm like, you guys are crazy. Be on the ground. You're crazy. Be down there. And I, 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 but I respect the hell out of it. And what's funny is they'll always be like, you're crazy to be in the sky. You're a sitting target. They can see you forever. I'm like, yeah, but I got a tank <laughs> like, that I control, you know? And so it's all perspective. But at the same time, when I, there was one time, and I'm going to share this story too, but there's one time we we engaged an enemy that was that was had a had a, a convoy pinned down, and I was out of Jalalabad. And two weeks later, it was my first engagement, by the way, too. And that's in the book, and it was crazy. We got rocked with an RPG and I was knocked out of the air twice. So I'm in the cow hall, and this guy comes in and says, Iron One Six in here, you know, military style, big bravado. I'm the one six in here. And I'm like, oh crap, I'm in trouble, you know, because I did take these risks that I knew that I took. And some people don't like that crap, right? And so I'm like, all right. I'm like, I'm right here. And I'm a lieutenant at the time. So as the guy walks up, he sees a captain. So I stand up. I'm like, sir. And he's like, he's like, there's a problem, you know, and and he's like, no, there's no problem. He's like, I'm on my way out of the field, going to Bagram. I am Titan 06. And I remember this call sign because this was my first engagement. You always remember first kiss. You always remember your first time. And you always refer, and always remember your first engagement with the enemy, right? Titan was the first engagement with the enemy for me. And and he he, he said, we were pinned down. We were pretty much helpless. You guys rolled in, took care of business, saved our lives. I just wanted to make a stop here, find you, shake your hand, and give you these coins, right? And it's a coin that comes from a captain. I have coins that come from generals and stuff at this point and all these other things. That coin carries more weight than any coin I have. And what he, and what he said was, keep doing what you're doing, Lieutenant. It matters. It matters a lot. Man, I'm on one today, but, but, but yeah, it's powerful. There's a connection there and you're right. And it's forged and it's real and you don't have to know them. You just have to respect that. They raised their hand and said, I'll do this. I'll do this. What can I say to that? Great answer, Brian. And, and I always say, don't ever apologize for having emotion. Oh, that, that's a powerful voice. thing, right? That's a powerful <laughs> thing. And, and, you know, the, the, the great, the great mini series and, and the great book band of brothers you know that's that's what that's what comes to mind and by the way one of the great great books and great stories but yeah it's that you know i've never been in combat obviously but but i've read about this where there's that bond it's it's something that's it's unspeakable it's un, it's invisible but but you all have it and that's amazing to me you know i i did come from a life of playing a lot of sports and i, I certainly don't want to say hey playing sports just like going to war no that's not what i'm saying but we, you know, any team, I think when you're, you're going into battle together and, and we'll put battle in, in air quotes, you, you do form a bond with those, those teammates. And I hear that in, in your words. So that's incredibly I, powerful. I tie sports into the, this a lot in my book. I, the very first chapters, I talk about football and how I learned teamwork and how I learned, you know, how to meet at the proverbial ball as a team and you lead by example and intensity. And if you lead that way, people will follow you, not because they feel compelled to by somebody else, but because they compel themselves to, they want to. Mm. And those like are lessons, that. those are lessons learned from sports. And I like, I, yeah, they're not the same. They're not the same, but if you're passionate about anything that's with a team, you can learn lessons that apply not only to war, but apply to life. I mean, those are, I tell people, and this is not what people educators want to hear. I learned more about how to be successful in life from sports than any class I took. So, yeah, I'm about to do a guest lecture. I'm a, I'm a, a professor at the University of Colorado. I'm about to do a guest lecture with some University of Colorado athletes and talk to them about what they can, what leadership lessons they can learn from the the playing field to take into life. So, I think a lot of athletes don't make the connection that you're making. And it's such a great training ground for not only life, but, but for leadership. And I think you're hitting on some of those points, Brian. Yeah, I had a, I had a, it was, this is what I coach now. I'm like, I have my 10 year old son and I coach flag football and I coach basketball. I coach every sport he plays, but he's really big into football and, and basketball and football was my sport. So that one's fun to, to coach. But I had a coach 
who for just two years, just two years, I had, you know, for football. And I look back and I'm like, the impact that man had on my life and the way I attack it and approach it is, is almost as much as my dad who raised me. Right. And I'm like, that's just, there's a lot of impact that can be packed into the, the, those, that teamwork, into that sport, into that. And as a coach, as a coach, you are, you are a pivotal role. And so you can be a pivotal role in those people's lives. He taught me commit, commit with courage, right? Commit with courage. And I will show you increased capability, right? You don't have to be good now, but if you commit and go full effort with courage that you'll get there, we'll have increased capability. And then I always add to that, that you'll have increased confidence too, and then start the cycle over. Mm. Confidence. That's a big one for me lately. I've really been focusing in on how do we get that? How do we develop that? You know, I, I say to clients that I coach, I go, well, I can, I can bring you part of the way with confidence. We can do some coaching and some mindset training, but at the end of the day, you got to go out there. And as the, the quote that I like to, you got to engage in battle and you gotta, you gotta forge that confidence on the playing field and, and out there mixing it up. And, and you can't get that from a book. So confidence, incredibly powerful. And, and I like what you're saying, Brian, you know, you said it, but let, let me reiterate coaches, teachers, even parents and anybody that is maybe mentoring young folks, let them know you believe in them and, and teach them some things that, that will, that will, you, you just never know how much impact you can have on those young lives. So you're talking about an example like that. And I have plenty of examples too, where coaches really were like a second father to me. And uh, I think sometimes uh, coaches maybe miss that. And that's a big deal. That big, it's a big deal. And I can see just from your stories, you've carried this into your life. You've carried this, you carried this into Afghanistan. And so what a great lesson, right? You learn these as a young man and, and now they impact your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. And you have, everybody has that. Everybody has that opportunity to be that person for someone else. Yeah. You never, you share your story, you share your experiences, you share, you, you coach where you can coach. Because you never know when your story, your experience is going to be the key to someone else's law. Well, that's a great lead-in. We we talked off the air of why'd you write this book, Brian? And and I think you're you're kind of touching on one of the reasons you wrote this book. I mean, why, you know, I'm in the middle of writing my own book, and I know it's a it's a can I say this on the air? It's a shit ton of work. <laughs> Anybody that's never wrote a book, I'm gonna tell you, I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm gonna tell you it's a lot of work. And so I'd say, Brian, why did you decide to to throw yourself into this and, and do all that work. Why bring this, this book to the world? Well, first of all, for those that don't know, a shit ton is more than 2000 pounds. There you go. And second of all, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It, it really hit me that, that, like I said, your story might be the key to someone else's luck. And, and when I, I won't, well, we're really kind of the catalyst for it. I got, I got presented on a decoration at a halftime show of a Utah jazz game by Senator Orrin Hatch, the late Senator Orrin Hatch. And, you know, I, I'm, I've never been in a situation where it was that big of an audience or that big of a whatever, and honestly pushed for it to be in a closed room somewhere else, but it's a Senator. So of course it's got to have like this stage. Right. And so so as I walked out there, half reluctantly at the time, because I thought it was much ado about, I did my job. Why are we doing this? You know, it's a little bit ridiculous. And I'd been to that game the whole first half and the Jazz were actually winning. And so there was a lot of cheering and a lot of whatever going on. And as I walked out there and they started to read the citation, it was deafening. It was the loudest than it had been that whole time, right? And everybody's standing, and and I was just like, wow. Gratitude filled my heart for being, once again, greatest nation in the world, but two, in a time period where the people may not agree with the politics, but they support the soldier, right? And then it hit me, they don't know me, you know, they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. They just know I was one. I was like, we just talked about, I raised my hand and they're grateful that I raised my hand and they're grateful. There's other men who raised their hand and they're grateful for that. 
And they want to show it any way they can. And that's one way that they could. And I'm sitting there and I was out there getting a reward for some some crazy thing that happened. You know, it was a mission where I got my engine shot out. My my flight controls were jammed and my co-pilot took a round of the leg. And I was so there was a crazy it was a crazy situation, a situation that taught me lots of lessons. And I felt stronger for it. And and then it hit me. I was like, wow, I have a lot of these lessons that have helped me become a stronger, better version of myself. But how selfish is it if they'll only serve me, right? I don't think that those type of intense situations, not a lot of people have that many intense situations in their life lifetime to use as teaching points. So those need to be used as teaching points, not just for me, for as many people as possible. And what I started to realize as time passed on is I felt stronger and, and, and better because of those experiences and more prepared for life because of those experiences. And many of the people that I served with that had similar experiences did not. Many of those people were struggling with life because of those experiences, because trauma has power. Trauma is powerful. It can hang you down. It can weigh a weight around your neck, or it can be a foundation that you build upon. It's a lightning bolt. A lightning bolt can freaking kill you or it can power a city, right? So it's how you use that lightning bolt. And when I started to see that, I was like, well, why me? Why am I digesting this in a different way? And I got together with people way smarter than me. They have the PhDs and all those letters and all those things. I said, why? You know, why am I experiencing post-traumatic stress growth? Like, right? Yeah, it hurts. I don't like that I had to kill people. Nobody likes that. Like, there was a lot of ugly. I was part of that ugly, but that ugly wasn't in me. Why? Why is it sticking in some people and pulling them down? And we we kind of you know, dissected what I was doing, what I wasn't doing, my history, my family history, all that stuff. And there were things that I can't teach. Some things you come to this earth with, some things you, you have a nuclear family or you don't. Sometimes you're abused or sometimes you're not. Some There's those things I can't affect. But there were things that were teachable that I was doing that we put into the book, right? And, and here's the deal. Trauma is trauma. Pain is pain. It's not war. Everybody has that, right? Everybody deals with that thing. Everybody either takes a lightning bolt and lets it freaking shock the hell out of them or they power a city. Right. Mm. And so, and it's not, I'm not blaming people that don't do that. It's a matter of knowing how to do that. Right. And, and so that was the catalyst. That was the purpose. That is my purpose. I'm retiring soon. And this is, we're building a training that is going to teach people to take trauma and turn it into triumph because that's what it can do. It can be your superpower, not your freaking weight around your neck. Right. But it's an understanding that gets you there. It's an understanding of why an acceptance is really an acceptance of who you are. That's as, as basic as it really is. Acceptance of who you are, that those things didn't break you. They are going to make you. They're, things don't happen to you. They happen for you, right? But it's a perspective shift that has to happen in order for people to use that lightning bolt to start a city. Otherwise, they just internalize that power. And man, that is destructive. Mm. So that's why I wrote the book. That's a, that's a compelling reason to write a book. And I I applaud you and all authors that that go through that process to to share that to share that with people and i'm also always encouraging people read more books people yeah. read more books because you got folks like brian that have put all this work into this to share his knowledge ton. and what's that <laughs> a shit ton <laughs> yeah a shit ton and and to share that and and let's be honest for roughly 15 20 dollars you get to benefit and myself I read a ton of books and myself, we, we all benefit from what that author's done. And so that's how we get better. And in, in my humble opinion, I love the, the, the lightning bolt. That's great. That's a, what a great metaphor to kind of think about. It can be destructive or it can be incredibly powerful in, in a good way. So, you know, this was, obviously this is a great, this is what your whole book is about, right? It's this idea of why do some people thrive and why do some people suffer after trauma? One thing I want to I want to say, you kind of touched on this lightly, but let me emphasize your trauma. Miss Mr. or Mrs. Listener or Mr. whoever's listening, 
you don't have to be in combat to say, hey, I've had trauma too. I don't like it when people get into this this battle of whose trauma is worse than the others. So just because you weren't abused as a child or just because you weren't a combat aviator, your trauma is real too. Whatever that trauma is, in our minds, that's real. And it's 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 something that needs to be validated. So don't let anybody make you feel bad like, oh, you got it made. That's not trauma. This is trauma. I, I see people do that. And it's called trauma envy. It's a trauma envy. I just made that yeah. up just now. Yeah. Well, maybe it's like my trauma is worse than your trauma, right? Yeah. And so, if my trauma is worse than yours, then then you shouldn't be complaining. That's ridiculous. Well, so, to, to, to paint that picture, this book chronicles a lot of crazy, traumatic, war fighting experiences. the The biggest thing that I had the hardest time dealing with was a relationship. Was a relationship, right? How many people can 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 relate to that, right? Yeah. A caustic or unhealthy or whatever you want to call it relationship that caused more pain and more trauma than, than killing hundreds of enemy. Right. And it was partly because of the preparation. I was prepared for one. I wasn't prepared for the other. Right. But that, to your point, that's why I say trauma is trauma. Pain is pain. It's all on acceptance and digestion. Right. That's, that's how, that's, that's how you turn it into triumph. Right. And you can get your trauma from any number of places, digestion and acceptance. Yeah, boy, I, I feel like I'm with you on that one. Relationships probably give me more trouble than anything else. And uh, not to say, again, not to make light of, of combat. I think I'd rather go into combat sometimes than deal with a, a bad relationship. It's tough. It's real and it's tough for most of us. And so, yeah, that's that's a good one. I, I felt like there was something else I was going to add to that, but I don't know what it was. Maybe it'll come back to me. You know, you know, I, I know that my my listeners get tired of hearing me say this, but it's true. When I say this, I I I, I love these conversations when I feel like you know, hey, let's grab a beer, Brian, and let's do this for two three hours. But we do have to be cognizant of your time, Brian. I appreciate you taking the time to kind of spend with us. This has been fun. I hope uh, the listeners are are as riveted by the, your stories as I am. So. um how can people work with you, Brian? How can they find your book? Those sort of things. And we'll put whatever Brian is about to say in the show notes. But Brian, how do we how do we get in hold of you? Yeah, I have a website, www.clearedhot.info. So it's .info, not dot. And if you go clearedhot.com, there's a, actually another podcast that I was on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a separate podcast, but great guy, Andy Stump. And then there's obviously Amazon. Amazon is the easiest, quickest way to get the book. You can get it through the website as well. But I mean, if I'm honest, you're going to get it quicker through the through Amazon because they've somehow figured out fulfillment better than anybody else on the planet. There's also a bunch of links that I'll send you, Ron, and I'll just send them to you and you can put them in there. Perfect. For- social media, whatever, because as people read the book, I like to hear, I mean, tell me your stories. And if you want, and if you're okay with me sharing your stories, your stories have power too. So when people do that and they let me know, Hey, you can share this. I've, I've helped other people with other people's stories. Right. So like I said, you never know, which is the key. You don't know that you don't know, you don't know the key, but that's the main ways to reach me. I'm ex- I'm grateful to be on here. I'm grateful to be on all the podcasts that I've been on. And uh, and I just, when you read this stuff or do this stuff, spread it. That's all, that's all I tell, tell people is I would encourage anyway. What do you, what's on the horizon, Brian? You said something, something about retirement, but do you think you, you might take another shot at writing a book? So I have a whole nother lit, the litany of deployments as a combat rescue pilot. And it was during the most busy time in combat rescues history. We were flying up to nine missions a day. Lots of crazy stories with that. I've had a lot of people say, when are you going to write this? Because they know those stories. They don't know these stories, right? And I don't know. We'll see. Because it takes a shit ton of work. This this one's been doing pretty well. If it continues to do well, then maybe I will. I have to have a purpose for it, though. Like this one, if it was just the stories, I wouldn't have done it, right? There has to be a reason. And so... I got some things mulling around in my head of how we can make that other book purposeful and in a similar but different way to to and but but the next horizon really the short term for me is I got a nonprofit called Trauma to Triumph and it, it really is a container training that has proven to be super effective for people. They come in thinking they're broken and they leave realizing they never were. Right. And yeah. 
Brian, is that is that active now or is that that's in the pipeline? So it's active. What right now the training is is exists as a I went through it with a with a guy that facilitates it and I loved it. And I was like, this is something I want to make for the military, right? And he's like, yes, let's do it. So he's we're partnering up on it. So right now I'm sending people to his existing training while we're building and standing up the one that's going to be a little bit more intense for the military, right? Outstanding. Um, and we'll, and so anybody that wants can hit me up and, and we'll get them to the training now. All right. L- let me clarify. Is this for civilians as well? Anybody can go the one. So like the one that I got right now, anybody, and I would encourage anybody to go because it, and it's, it's not cost prohibitive. I mean, it costs a little bit and, it, and, but it's not like some of these other things that are going to like break you, take out a mortgage, finance, all that kind of stuff. And the reason I'm setting up the nonprofit is because I'm going to make it basically to where anybody can go. And it's not going to be cost prohibitive at all. Like they're, they're very minimal to get, to get into it. So that's the whole reason I'm setting that up is so that, that nobody says I'm not going cause it's too expensive. Right. Good. Good. So. That's great. And, but I would also add, I'll be afraid dear listener to invest in yourself. You know, I spend money on investing in myself and learning and growing from, from folks like Brian. So that's another way to kind of look at it. Another way to spin it. It's and anybody listening, in you. When they have it, you have my links with my social media. Anybody listening, hit me on those if you're interested in this, and I'll get you. I'll get you. There's limited spaces, but we'll figure it out. Awesome, awesome. All right, Ryan, let's get to this this heavy this heavy last question we do on forging metal again for new listeners. Perhaps we just want to normalize failure. All people fail, and sometimes it's ugly. So, Brian, what what would you share with with the listeners about what's your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? So my greatest, I've already been emotional on this thing. So I got to take a couple deep breaths for those. You mentioned my son on, on there and how he's just amazing. So those of you don't know, I haven't, he's adopted me. He's African-American. Part of the reason he's so amazing in that picture, he's got a gigantic fro as a two-year-old, but I adopted him at day one. Like I I always tell people I got him wet. So I'm the only dad he's ever known. Right. And he's 10 now. I'm also hinted at the rough relationship with his, that is covered in the book. Well, that relationship lasted 10 years at the eight year mark is where we picked up my son, Axel. Right. And eventually I realized that it wasn't a good place for him with the mental illness that she was dealing with and things like that. And so we decided to go ahead and divorce. And I am now the sole parent of, of Axel. But short a couple of years after that divorce, I really felt this. I felt like I felt like I needed to provide a family for my son. I didn't realize I already did, right? He and I were a family. I, there didn't have to be this bigger picture. The picture was good, but I felt this urgency and pressure to create a family for my son. And I met a woman who had a couple kids and started to date her. And there were some red flags, but I pushed through those red flags because I wanted to force this issue, right? I wanted to, him to have siblings. I wanted him to have a mother influence. I wanted him to have these things. And I didn't pay attention to things that I should have paid attention to. And she ended up mistreating him. And that's ultimately a big part of what ended the relationship, but it took me way too long to see it. Way too long to see it because I was blinded by my own idea that I wasn't enough, right? That he, that somehow there needed to be more for him to get the most out of this life. And I have a really hard time forgiving myself for bringing someone into his life, encouraging him to trust her and treat her like a mother figure, which he did, And then having that completely taken advantage of and used against him and hurting him because of something I was pushing, because something that I didn't take the time to put due diligence in. And I just, he's good now. You know, I've got him through, I put him in counseling, put him in things. I got rid of the relationship, but but it was too long. It was, it, it it never needed to happen to begin with. 
everybody listening, you're enough as you are. You're enough as you are. That doesn't mean you can't grow a family. That doesn't mean you can't find more support. That doesn't mean those things can't happen. And, and it's great if they do. But forcing that issue because you somehow don't feel like you're enough is just stupid. Because you are. That's my biggest regret. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media. 